Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey folks, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. Uh, This week is something a little bit different than normal. Uh, I'll be interviewing myself. Is that a thing? I'm not sure. I'll just be talking to you by myself. Uh, My oldest daughter came down with COVID at the beginning of this week. Uh, Because of that, I had to cancel a trip to Virginia to spend a few days trapping with my friends Rachel and Wade from Elevated Wild. I also had to cancel some podcasts that were going to be recorded on that trip, as well as uh, a podcast that was going to be recorded here locally in Arkansas. So I am at a want for recorded podcast material. Uh, Normally, I try and run uh, a few weeks ahead of time to prevent that from happening, but you know, life has gotten in the way. So I thought this might be a good opportunity to just kind of catch everybody up on what's going on with Black Duck Revival, what I'm up to, and answer some questions from folks that follow me uh, either by listening to the podcast or follow me over on Instagram. So that's what I'll be doing today. Uh, like I said, this is this is an unusual type of podcast. Uh, you know, this is designed to be uh, an interview program, and we will get back to the regularly scheduled programming uh, Fort with, but, uh, hope you enjoy this one. It might be a little bit shorter. We'll just see how it works out. I don't want to force a bunch of conversation, but there's plenty to talk about. I feel like, uh, and yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this one. Stay tuned. Okay. So the other day I solicited questions from folks uh, that I could answer here in the podcast, kind of an ask me anything and folks uh, obliged me and they asked quite a few questions. So I think the first part of this podcast is just going to be me going through those questions. I'll do my best to answer them for you. Uh, Some answers will be pretty succinct, I imagine, and some might lead me down one of my famous rabbit holes. Uh, I love a good tangent and there's no one here to stop me. So we'll do that. Uh, first crop of questions is from Sean Causey, better known to me as dirty Sean. Uh, I've known this guy for quite some time, met him in the bar. Uh, I don't know, probably 12 or 13 years ago, back when I was still playing music, playing rock and roll and stuff. And, uh, man, he's always been like really honestly, he's been a great supporter of anything I've ever done, and uh, I really appreciate that, Dirty. So, yeah, I'm gonna go through your list of questions. Uh, Sean has recently kind of come into hunting, I think, with some of his buddies here in Arkansas in the last year or so, as far as I can tell by seeing his activity on Instagram, and he's been really successful. Looks like he's been uh, getting on quite a few birds. I think he might have killed a deer this year. So, yeah, man, I'm stoked to have you in the community and. 
I'm really glad that you're you're getting in all of this. Uh, it's a great way to live a life. And yeah, let me ask you, or rather, let me answer some of these questions for you, bud. So first question is, what's your favorite part of a duck to eat? So duck or goose, just waterfowl, pretty much is going to be the legs and thighs. I think that's the best part. Uh, I'm a dark meat guy when it comes to birds anyway. So, I mean, that's, I don't buy chicken breasts. I buy thighs if I'm going to buy parted out birds. Uh, you know, you have all of that kind of connective tissue, fat rides there a lot, especially in the waterfowl that I get in Arkansas. I don't usually deal with a lot of birds that have a, a ton of kind of subcutaneous breast fat. Most of that fat's going to be uh, kind of collected there on the ass end of the bird. So uh, those legs and thighs, really great, fat, flavorful meat. Uh, they respond really well to a, like a long, low and slow process. So I do a lot of searing them hard and then braising them for a long time in a flavorful liquid or stock. Uh, and then that's a great application as far as like making a gumbo or stew or something we really like here at my house is just rice and gravy where you take that braising liquid, reduce it, get that meat fork tender. Uh, I try and pull it before it's fallen off the bone because we like to use uh, that leg bone, that femur is kind of a little handle and just serve that on top of rice and it's fantastic. <clears throat> he also asked, uh, do you still get excited and goosebumps when the ducks are flying overhead or when a deer first walks out of the woods on a cold morning? So I can tell from this question that, uh, Sean is, is experiencing that stuff when he's hunting and that's fucking awesome, dude. And yeah, the answer is yes. Oftentimes I still do. Um, I'd be lying to you if I told you that it was that experience for me every time, because just like anything else, people do get used to things. You, you acclimate to it. Uh, and then a lot of times now when I'm hunting, I've got a lot of other focuses. I'm, I'm focusing on the clients that I've, I've brought out there. I'm thinking about everybody else's safety. I'm thinking about their experience and whatnot. But, uh, those times when I get to hunt by myself or just kind of buddy hunt, and I really get to key into that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, still to me, the, the greatest thing in waterfowling is hearing like that really low light, uh, in the early morning, like right before illegal light. And you hear those birds, uh, overhead, you hear that kind of, uh, and I'll have my old dog ammo with me, uh, very rarely now, uh, cause he's old, but I'll see him looking and he can see and hear that before I can. And yeah, man, that's a, that's a magical thing. And I hope I never lose that kind of sense of wonder, uh, that sense of excitement, uh, you know, kind of that's, you know, one of the closest, one of the closest experiences to kind of magic that I come across. Right. That's, that's my reverence. Uh, that's my reverent experience in the world. So yeah, absolutely, man. I think that if you, stop feeling those emotions that you're missing out on a big part of hunting and that, uh, you know, it's probably time to change things up or, you know, reanalyze what you're doing, how you're doing it and why you're doing it. Uh, which do you love more hunting or fishing, man? I like them both, uh, for different reasons. You know, I would, I would definitely say that I like I don't know if I can definitely say anything, man. This is really going to be kind of a, 
it's going to be very experience dependent, but man, I still, I'm still ate up with, uh, with waterfowling, with duck hunting and goose hunting. I think that's what I would, uh, that's what I'd be sticking with. Uh, but I, I've always given this kind of an answer that if you took everything else away from me, I would just squirrel hunt, uh, because here in Arkansas, you know, hunting, just still hunting for squirrels in these Eastern deciduous forests, you know, the worst day out there, you never see a squirrel. You never shoot a squirrel. It's still a fantastic walk in the woods. There's still so much stuff to soak up, uh, so much information to gather, so much finding yourself and just observing things and just becoming a little bit of a better woodsman and a little bit more of a participatory member of this natural world. So, uh, man, I have a blast fishing, but really the way that I fish is, is really more of kind of like running a trap line for fish, uh, as opposed to, uh, bebopping all over the place and, you know, throwing, uh, throwing a lure a hundred or 200 times an hour. So, man, I guess I would, I would say I'd stick with hunting on that. Uh, what's your favorite music to listen to before or after a hunt? Man, I really don't listen to music that much uh, before I hunt. I'm usually, uh, these days I'm usually listening to podcasts or I'm driving around in silence just thinking about stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really use music in that way. Uh, I mean, if I'm being totally honest with you, Dirty, I... I don't listen to music near as much as I used to. I, I'd say probably most of the music I listen to these days is the stuff my kids are listening to. So that's like a lot of Disney songs and then the stuff I'm trying to introduce them to. So, I mean, I'm still a huge, huge fan of uh, Towns Van Zant, pound for pound. I think the best songwriter America's ever produced. And, uh, I have also been introducing my kids to a bunch of cool rock and roll that I like. So, uh, like the other day we were driving to their, their preschool and, uh, we were listening to, uh, bad religion. So yeah, that just kind of waxes and wanes depending on, I guess the mood of stuff. But as far as hunting and fishing, I really don't have a ton of music involved in that. When I'm back at the lodge cooking, I do like to, uh, play just like a lot of cool uh southern music so i'll play a lot of kind of cajun zydeco stuff that kind of fits the scene uh howling wolf i play a lot of that uh yeah just kind of delta blues uh zydeco music uh some kind of cool 70s country western that kind of stuff all right man dirty asked a bunch of questions i appreciate you bud all right tell a story about hunting with your dog uh, so my dog's name is Ammo. He is, he will be 11 years old on March 9th. So very soon, uh, I got him when he was a year old. I got him from a, an ad in a Craigslist, uh, or a Craigslist ad. I was just kind of decided I wanted a dog. I wanted a retriever. I didn't have any money. And, uh, I found this, found this dog and he seemed kind of perfect. You know, they said he was already retrieving stuff pretty well that he was trained to ride in the back of a truck had a nice personality uh, I went and picked him up he was actually sired he was his mom was a 
black lab, a duck dog from Louisiana. And he was an accidental kind of breeding. Uh, his dad, I guess, was a Malinois. He was a canine dog for uh, the Benton, Arkansas Police Department. And uh, I guess, you know, he had gotten together with this lab. They had a litter of puppies. This fella had kept it, uh, kept ammo for as long as he, he could. But he was keeping the dog at his girlfriend's mom's house, and she got tired of that. So anyway, so I got ammo and he's been a great retriever for me. He's really in a lot of ways. He's changed my life. Uh, I fought fire. I was a professional firefighter for almost four years. And I came to that because of uh, a guy I met through uh, getting ammo trained a little bit and trying to think of a cool story. Uh, Man, I would say this, like ammo is not the greatest duck dog in the world. And that's not because of his shortcomings. He's very naturally gifted. He's picked up pretty much everything I've ever asked him to. That's totally because of my shortcomings. I had some years where I didn't duck hunt very much at all because of some other stuff that was going on in my life. Uh, And then, you know, there were years when I just wasn't very successful. And uh, yeah, he, I think he absolutely could have been just a bad to the bone duck dog. I never tried to, get him on hand signals or anything like that. I kind of worked from the perspective that he was my buddy. And if he picked up a few birds for me, saved me a few steps, that's all I was looking for. And I would say absolutely the best hunts I've ever had have just been me and him in kind of marginal spots over there in East Arkansas, just shooting a few birds. Uh, Probably before I was even really a good duck caller, just when I was shooting birds Cause I was getting away with it cause light was low and those birds didn't know any better. But, uh, I'll tell you just a real quick little story about how useful a dog can be. So everybody knows that, you know, you're duck hunting, you shoot a duck or you're goose hunting, you shoot a goose and you can send your dog out there to get that bird. Uh, I'd say specifically with goose hunting, something I see a lot is when you get those sailors, you get birds that, have a broken wing or are wounded, but they don't drop stone dead. They will kind of sail paired line far away. Like, you know, I've seen 500 yards and having a really great retriever is fantastic for those instances because otherwise, you know, you have to go out there, uh, going 500 yards on foot is a little bit of a haul. Uh, while you're out there in the field doing that, you're not going to be working any other birds because uh, you're out there to kind of disturbing the situation. A lot of times that bird, you're still going to have to chase it down or shoot it again or whatever. So having a really great dog to uh, pick that bird up is fantastic. But uh, another great use for a waterfowl retrieving dog is finding birds that you wouldn't see or that you wouldn't be able to find uh and them finding those birds with their nose. So one time I was hunting this little pond, uh, me and my buddy would call it the mitten cause it's kind of shaped like a mitten. And I had shot, uh, I had shot a, uh, hen mallard. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I'd shot a hen mallard and, uh, just couldn't get to it. It got away from me. It got in some grass and some edge and stuff. I just couldn't find it and the dog couldn't find it. And, you know, after 10 minutes or so, I just kind of gave up. I figured it had gotten away and about 10 o'clock decided to stop hunting that spot. 
uh, I wanted me and Ammo to go and investigate uh, another chunk of ground that we could walk to. Just going to leave the decoys where they were in the water and, you know, walk a quarter mile over into some timber and check some stuff out. And we were walking over that way and Ammo just kind of bolted off to the side off of this little levee road we were on and jumped down into some grass on the other side of the road and then popped up and he had this bird. And that bird had managed to get away into some thick stuff, go through a culvert, get over in some other grass on the other side of a levee road, and then it had expired over there. And I never would have thought to look over there. Uh, I never would have found that bird. You know, either yotes or a hawk or a skunk or a possum or something would have eaten that bird. And I just remember being so proud of him and just so stoked that I had a dog that had that kind of drive. He went and found that bird. And, uh, you know, it's a great reminder of why having a retriever in those circumstances can be so beneficial. Uh, You absolutely don't have to have a retriever to have really great quality waterfowl hunts, but uh, stuff like that, they kind of remind you of why you do have one. And then, uh, have you ever had trouble with game wardens? Man, I have not. I've been checked really only a handful of times. There was one time when uh, I got checked by a game warden and I'd been bow hunting and uh, we had, I got back to the truck. He was there kind of waiting for me. We had a nice pleasant conversation and he asked me why I wasn't wearing my hunter's orange. I said, well, you know, I'm bow hunting. Uh, We had that little brief uh, gun hunt, but that's over. Uh, Muzzle loaders, nothing's happening with that. And, uh, you know, regular gun season doesn't open back up for another week. So, you know, why do I need to wear orange? And he told me that, uh, in fact, there was a two day youth hunt, uh, that Saturday and Sunday, and it was a Saturday morning. And so because of that, you know, I should have been wearing orange. And I just told him very honestly, I said, man, you know what? I, you got me. That's my oversight. Uh, I'm happy to take the, take the lumps, you know, like I messed up and he ran my license. He said, man, you know, if we don't have any, you know, outstanding problems with you, I'm just going to give you a written warning on this. Uh, I didn't have any outstanding problems with him. And so he gave me a written warning, real nice guy. We talked about some duck hunting spots. He gave me a couple uh, suggestions on places I might go. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's really the only close to bad experience I've had with a game warden. Uh, but yeah, I really try and stay on up and up with all that stuff. I don't need, I'm really kind of a rule follower anyway, uh, as far as like legal stuff. Uh, and I also just, you know, because of what I'm doing, the attention that's on me, you know, this little bit of attention I get, uh, in this space, I don't need any problems with that. So yep, I try and, I try and play by the rules and that way if I do, uh, have any dealings or make an honest mistake like I did in that situation. I'm not up shit Creek. All right. Uh, let me check out another question I've got here. So yeah, Sean, thanks a bunch. Those were a bunch of uh, great questions and thanks for helping me start the podcast off of those. Uh, all right. So I've got another question from Instagram. This is from an account called my season report. And they ask, do you garden, forage mushrooms and berries or fish much? So, yes, I do fish uh, primarily. I pan fish. So that's, 
like here in Arkansas, that'll be brim. Uh, other places, you know, they call those uh, sunfish or bluegill or whatever. But I brim fish quite a bit with my kids and crappie fish. And, and then I use these kind of uh, non, what do they call those methods? Uh, they're traditional methods here in the South. I forget. I think there's like non-standard. No, alternative methods. That's what it's classified as. So that would be like limb lining, trot lining, jugging, uh, using bank poles, running yo-yos. So essentially, if uh, and I, I guide those trips as well. So you'll hear me talk about that at the end of the podcast a lot. I'm actually booking those trips right now if you're interested. But essentially, if you've ever seen that show Swamp People, the way that they catch alligators is very similar to the way that I uh, spend a lot of my time catching catfish. So I'm basically going and bayous, uh, you know, rivers like the Cache River, the White River here in East Arkansas. I'm finding tree branches that are hanging over these bodies of water. So a lot of times this is going to be like a tupelo or a cypress tree. I'm finding these springy branches and I'm tying a piece of nylon, a twine onto the end of these branches. Uh, that's run down to a uh, barrel swivel with a clip on it, uh, with a hook on it. I like to use like four-aught circle hooks or four-aught octopus hooks. And uh, then I run any variety of bait, any, you know, lots of different kinds of bait. It'll be natural bait. You can use uh, like back hook minnows if you wanted. Uh, I use a lot of this stuff called zote soap, which is this Mexican laundry soap. Uh, gizzards, uh, deer liver, cut bait, bluegills, all sorts of stuff. But anyway, on that swamp show, people, the way they catch those alligators is they run a similar setup. and uh, But they'll use bigger bait, so like a chicken quarter, and they hang it above the water. I'm hanging my bait down in the water. I can adjust it depending on the water depth, how low I want it. And uh, then I'm just kind of relying on that bait to put off a scent trail. Catfish that are coming from downstream will follow that scent trail up, go to bite that. They'll get hooked. That springy branch will kind of act the same way that a fishing pole does. Like they get a little bounce. They can work it a little bit, but they can't get off. And then uh, I'm coming back and I'm periodically checking all of those those lines. Uh, if it's still kind of cool, the water temp's low, you can get away with like every 24 hours. Um, if the water starts warming up, I like to check it, you know, every 12 hours. So the fish aren't getting too stressed out and, uh, you're not losing any, any animals every once in a while. When it starts warming up, you'll lose a fish or two to like a, a snapping turtle will get in there and just have themselves a meal. But, uh, most of the time it's a really great and effective way to catch a lot of fish. And I have a blast taking people out to uh, learn how to do that. Uh, catch a lot of fish. You get to learn a lot about the environment that you're in. And yeah, it's just kind of a blast. And so that method, the method that I described, uh, pretty much all, most of the other ways that I fish are augmentations of that. So fishing a body of water, it doesn't have those trees with those branches hanging over it. You can make something called a bank pole, which is essentially where you're going to stab a big, uh, bamboo pole into the bank that's hanging out like on a 45 degree angle over the water. You're going to tie a line onto the end of that pole and then let that hang down into the water and kind of make your own springy branch. Uh, 
a trot line is imagine a lot of those kind of drops hanging off of one long uh, string or rope or line uh, like across a body of water lots of ways to augment this but uh, and then oftentimes weighted down in the middle so if you've ever seen like long lining in the ocean imagine that on a much smaller scale in a bayou or a river or a lake and I'm doing that for catfish and then jugging if you've ever seen me in my left arm, I've got a tattoo of a milk jug with a line tied on it and a back hooked brim. Uh, that's essentially like the same sort of method, except instead of tying that line onto a stationary branch or a pole, you're going to tie it on to a old milk jug or a pool noodle or something like that. Throw that in a lake or a body of water. And then the breeze or the current will have that, uh, have that line move all across that body of water and just kind of fish in the whole place. A fish will get on it. They'll get hooked. They can't get that, uh, essentially that buoy under the water. And then you go back and you get a hold of that milk jug and pull that fish in. So long explanation, but yeah, so I do quite a bit of fishing as far as foraging. Uh, I'm not really great on mushroom identification. That's definitely a hole in my repertoire that I'd like to get a lot better at. And I'm hoping to uh, do some work with some folks this year that are much more knowledgeable about that and, uh, get better at that. But yeah, I do quite a bit with acorns every year. Uh, as far as like berries, kind of the, the berry that I deal with most here in Arkansas is a dewberry. Folks down in Texas know, know about that quite a bit. It's kind of like a, a wild blackberry. Uh, and I've actually got a, a really cool recipe on the website for doing a dewberry and balsamic ice cream. That's pretty fantastic. That balsamic kind of makes it taste like buttermilk and uh, super tasty. Uh, yeah. So foraging berries. Oh, gardening. Yeah. We grow a big garden every year. We keep yard birds and we are actually focusing on expanding both of those this year. So we're going to get some more chickens. I'm actually thinking about getting a setup to uh, do a couple of ducks, just like some khaki Campbell's or something for eggs. And uh, yeah, as far as gardening, we, we grow like a pretty traditional Southern garden. So we do a large variety of peppers. Those do really well in this climate. Uh, okra, we grow a ton of okra, cucumbers, tomatoes, as far as beans, uh, something we've been growing for years is something called a rattlesnake bean. That's, uh, I think a bean that really kind of have its, has its foothold over in Appalachia. But if you pick them when they're real young, you can eat them just like a pole bean, like a string bean. And, uh, if you let them get real big, that the pod they're in gets to be kind of tough and leathery, but you can dry them out and, uh, shuck them and just eat them like a, a dried bean, you know, black eyed pea or something. We, what are we going to add this year? I think we got some cool kind of out of country varieties, or I guess a lot of that stuff originally came from another country, but, uh, we're going to try some different kind of, uh, cucumbers, expand the pepper varieties. I got some cool peppers from my buddy, Hank Shaw of hunt, gather, cook. So I'll be uh, trying that out. Uh, Jerusalem artichokes is something that's super easy to grow and really prolific. So we'll, we used to grow that at our uh, old house. We're going to get back into those. And uh, actually, Marianne and I have to, we keep meaning to, but we need to, here in the next couple of days, figure out 
what else we're going to grow because we're probably already a couple weeks behind as far as starting seeds. Uh, next question. Favorite way to hunt ducks outside of the timber? And that question comes from uh, Gus Merwin on Instagram. Uh, thanks for that question, bud. So uh, hunting ducks outside of the timber. Man, I'm going to be totally honest with you. I think that hunting ducks in the timber is, you know, about as close to a holy experience as I've ever had. It's it's the way that I want to hunt ducks, um, you know, most of the time. That said, uh, I'm not opposed to to hunting them other ways. I'm, you know, hunting a hunting a field situation can be very productive, and I'm fine with that. It's it's not going to give me, I'm not getting everything that I want out of it the way I am on a really great timber hunt. Uh, and so I'd actually have to say that, you know, second to hunting ducks in the timber, man, I like a good, uh, just slip down a Creek and jump shoot wood ducks kind of hunt. I know that's, you know, supposed to be some sort of a, a no, no, like you're only supposed to shoot ducks if you land them and, uh, you know, you can't shoot them on the water, but I've got, I've got zero problems from time to time, uh, slipping down a Creek and shooting a wood duck or two, and maybe shooting a couple of squirrels. There used to be this place I would hunt uh, a guy that I worked for had like 500 acres over in the, uh, off of the Saline river here in Arkansas. And just a little, he had a little Creek that ran off of it. And I called it gumbo Creek because I killed a couple mallards over there, but mostly what I would do is just kind of uh, sit and wait and shoot a couple of wood ducks when they came through and then creep down, try and shoot a few more and then just enjoy my morning and shoot a few gray squirrels and, you know, usually come back with a couple of ducks and two or three squirrels and, you know, plenty for a pot of gumbo. So I call that place gumbo Creek and man, it was a blast. Uh, outside the levees, really cool account on Instagram and Really awesome YouTube channel. Guy named Jared has that. Uh, he's producing really cool content. I encourage you to follow him. Take a look at his videos. He does a lot of stuff with uh, hunting and fishing and cooking wild game down in Louisiana where he lives. And I hope to get down there and uh, do some hanging out and some hunting with him this year. But uh, Jared asks, uh, will you be offering catfish trips this spring? Yes, I will, Jared. Uh, yeah, if you go to the website, you can see... Uh, Go to the experiences tab and that'll kind of give you all the info you want uh, if anybody's interested in that uh just go to that experience tab and you can hit the link on there send me a message we can figure out a time to get out there i'd say best time to do it would be mid-march through the end of may it's not that you know later into the summer can't still be very productive it's just as far as in my opinion prettiest time to be out there uh just best experience as far as weather it hasn't gotten super hot yet um the bugs haven't gotten thick because mosquitoes you know can get uh, can get thick uh in east arkansas in the summertime and just tons of fish you know good good percentages on those catch rates uh but yeah i'll be offering those trips and i hope some folks book some that they're honestly, they're like one of my favorite things to do. It's very low pressure. It's just a really fun way to hang out with cool people 
And, you know, I, I would say this, I've never had anybody book one of those trips with me and me, me personally not have a really good time with those folks because anybody who's willing to spend their money on that trip, uh, is, a, is the kind of person I want to hang out with because they're there for more than just stacking up animals. Obviously they want to, you know, you know, fill their freezer and it's designed to be a way to do that, but it's just a very leisurely way of spending time in a beautiful natural environment, talking about the area and the history and uh, all the different animals and all the different plants that live in that region and use that place. And yeah, it just makes it one of my most favorite things to do. Uh, all right. Carlos Garzon asked the question. Um, have you ever had a bad encounter? And he specifies racially with someone out in the woods. If so, how did you deal with it? Uh... Hmm. So, yeah, I, you know, I'd say that I've had uncomfortable situations uh, a, a handful of times. I wouldn't say I've, I've had just like a really bad one um, where I, I felt like maybe my safety was really, you know, in I was in danger or something like that. I've had plenty of those situations in my life, but as far as like hunting or fishing, I wouldn't say that I've had that. Uh, I mean, look, if we're going to be real about this, uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard some fucked up racial epithets, uh, in the woods from people, uh, specifically duck hunting. Uh, and it has influenced, you know, who I duck hunt with. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't just accept invitations from anybody the way I used to, because, you know, it's like, you're not going to really have a problem with, I'm not going to have a problem with that kind of stuff, uh, with the person who invited me, but because duck hunting is like a communal activity, you know, there's always this guy's buddy and his buddy's buddy and just people say dumb stuff or ignorant stuff or don't expect me to be the one who's coming along and maybe they've got a problem with it. Maybe they don't even realize they have a problem with it. And, uh, yeah. So I've heard messed up stuff before and, uh, I've, and I told this story like on a BHA storytelling, uh, virtual thing. I don't know, a year, 14 months ago, I had kind of a weird situation when I was bear hunting, uh, over in Western Arkansas, up in the mountains, but I wouldn't say it was bad. I mean, I wasn't, uh, I didn't feel like this guy was going to, you know, attack me or anything. So I don't know. I mean, if we're, if we're being real about that, you know, that's kind of, uh, I've written about this a little bit and I'm not downplaying it, downplaying it at all, but like that kind of foul stuff is kind of one of, you know, that's like, one of my crosses to bear, right? Like that's part of the reality of being a, uh, biracial person, you know, comma, a black person, comma, a non-white person in the hunting space. But it's also, you know, I experienced it, experienced that kind of stuff, uh, in every ass, 
aspect and facet of my life. So uh, I would say that probably per capita, I've experienced less of it uh, in the woods than I have in other situations. And uh, that's one of the reasons, you know, that, that I like spending so much time in the woods and on the water. Uh, it's, I've talked about this before, too. I, I feel like it's as close as I usually get to like a, a true meritocracy. So, you know, using some common sense, uh, you know, trying to stay aware of your, you have some situational awareness and, uh, you know, just deciding who you're going to be around in those situations can help out tremendously. Uh, next question. Um, this is from Roaming Stoic, otherwise known as Brad Green, a good buddy of mine and fellow uh, BHA board member here in Arkansas. And Brad asks, are we sometimes overthinking the why of hunting instead of just enjoying it on the simplest level? So I think I get what you're asking here, man. And, you know, maybe... I'm responsible for uh, asking too many of these why questions. Uh, and I'd say, yeah, man, probably sometimes. I think that sometimes we can get too precious with this stuff, right? Uh, sometimes we, and I'm talking about like the collective we in this community, we can try and force value or meaning or romanticism where maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, and that's probably just like a failing of being a person, right? I don't, I don't know that it's particular to hunting. Uh, although I do think that hunting to me where, where hunting fails is kind of in the extremes of both sides. Right. And I'm sure that we could extrapolate that into all sorts of uh, different aspects in our lives. But you know, to me with hunting, we either go way too far in one direction and it's just this, you know, brown is down. If it flies, it dies. This, this kind of uh, man's dominion over nature, rapacious attitude that I find really disturbing and off-putting. And uh, I think that sometimes there's an overcorrection to that foulness and we get this this over romanticism, right? We get, uh, and we start using words like harvest and, you know, maybe we wax a little too, uh, poetic about uh, all the things that we get, all the intangible things that we get from hunting. Uh, and I, I speak about the word harvest because even though occasionally I do find myself using that word, it's usually it's because of who I'm dealing with. Most of the time I'm going to use the word kill because I think that's honest. That's what I'm doing. Um, now there's a way to do that and a way to participate in that, that I think is ethical and moral and, you know, even sometimes noble. Uh, but to me, there's a, I separate the idea of killing something and harvesting something because harvesting to me means that you've raised it. It's been that animal's existence has kind of been negotiated for the purpose of its ultimate death, you know, to feed a, a human being, whereas hunting is something different. So 
Yeah, man. I think that I get what you're talking about. And I think that sometimes we just need to, to go out there and experience hunting and fishing and being in the natural world uh, and kind of experience it in real time. Um, <clears throat> but, man, if I'm really being honest, you know, I'm looking for... I'm looking for other stuff out of hunting. I'm looking for other stuff out of out of being in these these uh these natural places and these wild places. So I think for me personally there is a lot of meaning uh in it and I I am a person who's you know who's just kind of conditioned and just by nature I'm going to analyze the why and the what and the how and think about all that kind of stuff. But I do feel like it's a it's a very personal sort of endeavor and it's very dependent on each particular situation. And so I think if I'm reading the question, right, I think I do agree with you that, that we, we need to feel free to take those experiences, uh, just as they come to us, not to, not to force anything onto them and let them be what they are and let them steer us, uh, in the directions or, you know, reveal themselves, uh, in, in the way that, you know, just seems authentic to us. All right. Uh, next question here. Uh, this is from, this is on Instagram from a fella named Lakash. That's his Instagram handle. His name is Joshua Henson. Uh, and man, this guy's doing some cool stuff too. He's, he's doing some really cool food stuff that I've seen and I appreciate. So, uh, yeah, thanks for the question, bud. This question is what's your favorite preparation for hearts, gizzards, and livers. So anyone who's ever been at black duck revival and has attended one of the waterfowl hunt schools will know that I'm real big on dirty rice. Uh, I'm going to use all of those, uh, bits of awful, in dirty rice. I think that's kind of like one of the best tasting ways to use them. It's one of the most approachable ways to use them and introduce, uh, those ingredients to people that maybe aren't used to using them. And man, super tasty, really good, very easy. You know, you don't even really know what you're eating, which makes it very simple. Uh, I also just like, uh, a waterfowl heart that's kind of simply dressed maybe with some sort of kind of steak seasoning just cooked very simple uh simply over like an open fire or you know kind of cooked rare or medium rare and eaten like that that's really tasty uh, i also use those those ingredients in gizzards or sorry in gumbo quite a bit um i just like to kind of add that little tiny bit of funk i think it steps up the uh, the flavor profile of a, a super stew and is fantastic for that. Okay. Next question comes from Instagram from Ivy and they ask what your dream, uh, black duck revival event, mm, man, uh, really great question because it's something I think about a lot. Uh, you know, I don't know if I have like a singular dream event, 
Uh, and this kind of gets into a, a little bit more of a talking point about Black Duck Revival and maybe what's what I'm looking to do with it moving forward. But really, to me, you know, what I'm looking to do with with the place that that particular space. Excuse me, is to uh, to to really use it as a hub to kind of investigate this larger idea of craft and community. So that means that, you know, obviously right now I'm, I'm doing a handful of these very kind of uh, intentional, uh, small scale curated waterfowl hunting and uh, cooking experiences. I do that in the wintertime. And then when we move into the springtime, like we are now, I'm doing the catfish excursions. Uh, but, you know, I'm really interested in the, the history of Southern food. I'm fascinated with uh, all those different points of intersect uh, with uh, people and places and politics that food kind of uh, allows us to access. So say specifically like what I refer to as the black culinary diaspora, that's kind of African-American history in this country, particularly uh, examined through food and through the transmogrification of food and people across the Southern United States and how that intersects with wild food, how that intersects with different methods of cooking, like uh, cooking outside, cooking with fire and smoke, you know, barbecue is something I'm, I'm really interested in and I've kind of been doing a deep dive on. So, uh, I'd like to, and I, I think I intend to later on this year, uh, to do a kind of a barbecue weekend, an investigation of, uh, black food, like on a small scale, maybe four or five attendees come spend a weekend there at the lodge. Uh, we wouldn't be hunting or fishing necessarily, but, uh, you know, we'd probably do like uh, some whole hog barbecue preparations. We'd be doing sausage making, crackling making, uh, we doing some really kind of communal, uh, some, sorry, some really cool and tasty communal soul food, uh, meals throughout the whole, uh, weekend. And then just being able to, uh, to hang out and talk. I really enjoy having these, uh, or orchestrating these events that are like on a small scale and there's enough room for just the experience itself to breathe. I find it's a great vehicle for conversation, uh, for kind of community building, for people to get to know each other and themselves. And then they really kind of have what I describe as a summer camp experience where you, you feel like you get to know some people really well in a short period of time. And it's not that you necessarily become best friends with those folks, but but I do think it informs the experience to a level that then when you go back to your, your place of origin, you go back to your people, your family, your house, uh, that you've absorbed those experiences and that information in a way that's uh, impactful enough that you can then kind of disseminate it through your own lens or through your own filter to people that you care about. And then you kind of end up with something that has a life of its own. So, uh, again, we talked about earlier in the podcast about me going on these tangents. Uh, yeah, I think my intention as far as like a dream event is to do some more cooking 
stuff there at Black Duck specifically about cooking uh, that doesn't necessarily involve hunting and fishing and, you know, hopefully do a few events like that. I do kind of have some plans later on this year to maybe do a couple of pop-ups there at the lodge. Uh, I'm thinking about doing like a fish fry and then maybe like a chicken fry uh, a couple months later and just let folks come through, like buy a plate hang out at the lodge, kick it for a while, and then do some sort of, uh, on those pop-ups, do some sort of profit share and, and actually give some money back to the town of Brinkley, uh, or do some sort of like cool scholarship or something for some of the kids coming out of that town. Because, you know, the Delta is a, is a place that historically people come to and they take from it right like right now the delta exists as an agricultural hub and as a hunting and fishing hub and so you have lots of people coming there to hunt and to fish and to hang out and yes they spend money but that money only goes into you know like a a limited pool it only goes into the the hands of the haves and there's a lot of have-nots in the delta and i think it would be cool to put a little bit of money back into that place. So I'm kind of rolling some ideas around in my head for that. Uh, going to continue to do the, uh, the hunt and fish schools. And then kind of beyond that, as far as like black duck revival, uh, I've got a lot of intention this next year to, uh, kind of take the black duck revival show on the road. So I'm making myself available to, uh, to travel outside of the state of Arkansas. Cause there's a lot of people that just for whatever reason, you know, maybe they don't have, uh, they don't have the disposable income to come and pay the amount of money that it costs to come do a, a weekend hunt school for themselves. But maybe them and their buddies, they've got a, a duck camp or a lodge or something like that. And they can all pool, you know, a few hundred dollars together. And then I can come out there and we can hunt together. We can do all those processing classes and cooking classes, uh, where you're at. Uh, and then that's cool for me because then I get to hunt, uh, different places, uh, see more of this country that I'm fascinated with, uh, meet different people, which is always a great experience for me and just kind of really broaden my horizons as well. So as far as BDR events, I think that's what we're looking at for right now. Uh, thanks for that question. And thanks for the opportunity to kind of expound on that. Uh, I've got this question from Lance Beckman. He's a local fellow here in Arkansas, and he says, not to be too specific on location, but how do you fish uh, the rivers when they flood? So, uh, man, like I said, I'm I'm mostly limb lining and trot lining and stuff like that. So my methods for fishing those, those bodies of waters when they flood aren't too terribly different. I'm going to pay attention to, to the current a little bit more because there'll be more current in those, uh, those rivers then. And I'm going to run my lines deeper. That's really about it. I'm, you know, it's a, it's a pretty simple way of fishing. Uh, now if I'm pole fishing or something like that, obviously I've got to start taking into account the turbidity of the water. So I'm, you know, if very rarely am I throwing like a zoom bait, like a plastic bait, but Obviously, if the water's like dirty, muddier, there's more stuff in that water. I'm gonna throw a bait that's easier to see, uh, that has a, you know, a little bit more of a prominent uh, color display. But 
you know, I do that a little bit, but not a ton. I'll do that in the bayou some just because you can kind of catch anything on one of those, those little zoom baits. But, uh, yeah, I, like I said, I'm, I'm not really changing my methods as far as limb lining and trout lining that much, uh, when the rivers flood up, I do find that when the water's low, those fish are going to be, they're all going to be in the channels, right? Because that's the only place for them to be. Uh, so like, I'm just going to be running lines in those places when the water gets up and out of its banks, those fish are going everywhere. And I think especially they're going outside of those channels because there's food everywhere, right? So I'll, I'll go deeper into that flooded terrain to run lines. I've also found that when the water is getting up, those fish are way more willing to bite. When the water is actively dropping down, it's almost like they realize that they could get themselves in trouble. They could get themselves caught in a little pool of water that dries up or something. So it seems like when the water is actively falling, they're less willing to bite and then after a week or so of that water being low, they settle into it. They know where they're at and they, they start picking that bite up again. Maybe that's make believe, but that's kind of uh, the experiences that I've had. Uh, Lindsey Brown Davis, good friend of mine from Utah. And also I think which podcast episode is she on? She was on the black duck revival podcast on episode 12, really fantastic episode. Uh, she's a person that I, I count myself, uh, lucky to have as a friend and just like really inspiring human being. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, I'd encourage you to, I'd also encourage you to, to follow her on social media and, uh, everything she's doing over there on her website as well. But so she asks, uh, what's your favorite thing about being a dad of two girls? Uh, and I'm going to actually put that in conjunction with a question from uh, Joel Zavala who came down during the hunters of color hunt this year because he asked what's your thoughts on how to introduce your girls to hunting so yeah favorite thing about being a dad of two girls is I think the change in perspective that it's given me uh, I used to kind of think it was a cheat when people would talk about having children being a motivation to like be a better person, uh, to be the best version of themselves that they could be. Uh, and I don't think that anymore because I have two children and it's absolutely been that way for me. Uh, I kind of realized that, you know, those are two little people that are going to base their interpretation of the world on me and on my example. And that, you know, if I wanted to give them the best shot at being like really quality people, really good people, and, you know, uh, hopefully as undamaged as possible <laughs> from their upbringing, that I was going to have to be better myself. I was going to have to improve myself. Right. And so that that expands in every aspect of my life. Uh, it's weird for me still because I've got myself to a position where people ask me questions. They look for advice for me to some small degree, uh, or even look to me like I'm some sort of example. Uh, and that's weird for me. And, you know, to be honest, it's kind of uncomfortable for me. I'm still very much getting used to it, but, 
you know, as imperfect as I am, and I'm very much a flawed, flawed, fucked up human being, just like all of us. Uh, I kind of don't have the option of wallowing in that too terrible much, too terribly much when it comes to these kids, because they're in such, you know, I've got a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old, and they're at such a formative state in their life that, uh, you know, me messing up will have big ramifications on them. So, you know, I'd say selfishly that, you know, the best part about being their dad is that it's a, it's a really great way to try and tap in to the motivation to be the best version of myself. Uh, and then if I'm going to give you just like a squishy answer, man, it's like the cuddles, uh, like that's some really great restorative stuff. Uh, and then Joel asked about introducing them to hunting and fishing. So it's both of my kids, they have very different personalities. Um, and so the way I introduce them to hunting and fishing is going to be kind of personality dependent for my oldest daughter, uh, who has begun to ask me about going hunting with me. Uh, we're already doing like some fishing in the summertime with, uh, you know, the grandparents and my wife and that's just us like going out on a pontoon boat and catching a mess of brim, which I think is great because it's really high percentage and it gives them some success. And then we hype it up a whole bunch and, you know, thank them and say, Hey, you're helping to feed the family and, and really trying to get them to understand the value in that. Uh, so we've, we started doing that. And then I've told my oldest daughter that, you know, when she hits five, which will be uh, June 1st, that, you know, that's when she's five years old, she can start hunting with me. Uh, that, you know, does not mean I'm going to put a gun in her hand when she turns five, but I am going to start kind of, you know, getting her dressed up in all the accoutrement of hunting. I'm going to take her out for little small expeditions. I think probably what we'll do is we'll just start on like some solo daddy daughter nature walks. We'll call them squirrel hunts. Um, but it's just kind of a, a way to introduce her to the flora and the fauna of the environment. Um, help her practice walking quietly, help her practice uh, just like an, an observational approach to being in the woods. And uh, I guess I should wind this back a little bit too. Like ever since they were little, 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 um, every time I bring fish home or birds home or deer home or a bear, any of that stuff, uh, I let them touch it and hold it and put their hands on it. I don't force them in anything weird or scary, but I, I let them just become familiar with it, which I think has, has helped kind of demystify it for them. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. And I can't give you a whole bunch more information because you know, I, I have not taken my kid hunting per se yet, but that's how I intend to kind of keep building on that. Um, what I'm not going to do is take my five-year-old out in a goose field when it's 20 degrees and make her sit there and suck it up and endure it because I want her to enjoy it right now. Um, there will come a time when I might be a little bit tougher on her and, you know, I do want my kids to learn to be comfortable with discomfort, but you know, there's no point in ruining the experiences for them right now. So I'm just going to try and keep it fun and light and let their interest and their ability kind of dictate where we go with it.
Um, I think there's just a few more questions here. Uh, sorry. Uh, okay. So, what is your favorite waterfowl to eat? Um, man, I like a mallard. I like a wood duck. I like a teal. I like a speckle belly. Uh, probably order of that would be speckle belly. You're going to be up top. And then mallards and wood ducks and teal are kind of all together for me. Uh, they all taste good. I've never had a bad duck. Honestly, I, I really never have had a bad duck. So, And look, I've eaten scoters. I've eaten mergansers. Those birds are not as good as a speckle belly or a mallard. But if you brine them, you pay attention to what you're doing cook them the right way you can get a solid b or a b plus out of those meals um and you know if it comes down to it you can make just about anything taste good in a gumbo um dream hunt as of right now uh you know honestly i don't know that i've got well, no, that's not true. I do have like kind of a little bit of a bucket list for hunts right now. I think what I'm really focused on is just hunting as much as possible and kind of across, uh, across the realm. So like waterfowl specifically, I really want to spend a lot of time this next season, starting with early season and like late August and September doing some traveling, uh, and pursuing Canada geese. That's something that I don't have a lot of experience with here in Arkansas. And I'd like to, I'm just really, really fascinated with geese right now in my life. And I'd like to just, you know, bebop around uh, some different places and goose hunt with some folks that know a whole lot more about it than I do. And, uh, you know, try and put a bunch of birds in the freezer and uh, learn a bunch about it. Uh, so that's, that's kind of definitely on my list of you know, dream hunts, I guess. Um, but I would say, you know, like when I'm running through the park every morning and that's something I've started to do, which is running. And I might talk about that a little bit here in a minute, but like what I'm kind of thinking about, I guess, is like my bucket list dream hunt would be a, a sheep hunt. Um, and that's really because I think it would be really physically hard and, Right now, I'm interested in kind of developing my body uh, and getting it as tough and resilient as I'm capable of making it and then maintaining it uh, in that state for as long as I possibly can. And I, I feel like a sheep hunt is a is a cool, just hard hunt to kind of shoot for. Uh, I don't know that I'll ever be able to do that, uh, you know, if I keep keep on kind of like this little trajectory that it seems like I'm at in life and with hunting and access to stuff, I might have an opportunity to do that. But even right now I'd be stoked just to go on a, a sheep hunt and, you know, just kind of be an observer, maybe write an article about it uh, and help carry somebody else's animal uh, off the mountain. I think that'd be really cool. And then, yeah, there's lots of other cool stuff I'd like to do. It'd be cool to kill a big bull elk. Uh, I'd like to do, quite a bit more bear hunting spot and stock bear hunting in some different places. Um, it would be really cool, uh, to get 
the get the chance to hunt a moose. But yeah, I don't know. I'm not really I'm not really ate up with any of these kind of big charismatic megafauna type hunts, I think as much as a lot of folks are. Uh I do I do intend and hope to spend some time down in Louisiana this year, uh kind of running lines for gators and yeah, those are kind of my those are kind of some of my hunting goals. Uh which also I think will answer a question that I was asked. Uh, the first question I was asked by recreational chef. That's a guy named uh, Justin over in Baton Rouge who does, uh, does some really cool stuff on his Instagram page as far as uh, cooking with wild game. And he asked about my hunting and cooking goals for 2022 and 23. I think I just rattled off a bunch of those. Uh, so maybe I got two birds with one stone there. Uh, are there any other questions I'm compelled to answer? I got a couple of silly questions from people I know. Uh, I'm not really going to answer those because they're silly, but, uh, I did see them and ha ha ha. And man, this might be a good final question is, uh, how do you balance all of your values? So I'd say, man, that's something that's very much uh, a work in progress. Uh, I'm absolutely a person that has a strong kind of established value system and I, you know, try and live by a code, but like everybody else, I'm, I'm constantly falling short of that. Uh, I'd say probably on a daily basis. Uh, and so that's something I, I really struggle with, right? You know, like there's the person that I want to be the person that I, want to believe myself to be. And then, you know, the realities of where I fall short of those goals and the, that value system all the time. So I think where I'm at right now is I'm really trying to focus on my unit, like the stuff that I can control, which is me and mine. So that's me, uh, my wife, Marianne and my two daughters. And like, really all I can control is me, uh, you know, when we're talking about those people, but you know, that's me trying to be the best version of myself, the best husband, the best father. And I feel like if I do that, if I'm nice to people that I encounter in the world, if I'm nice to the, the cashier at the grocery store, if I'm nice to my kids, teachers, if I'm, you know, just kind of treating people the way that I want to be treated, that you know, that will hopefully keep me, uh, within and as close to my value system as possible. Uh, you know, and that's me trying to live a good ethical life where, you know, I'm hopefully I'm contributing some good into the world. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying, man. You know, that's all I can, all I can say is I'm trying to give myself a little bit of grace when I mess up and then just keep trying to do better and do better. Uh, anyway, so that's kind of the end of the questions. I'm really kind of surprised. I thought that was going to be like 20 minutes of me talking and that's pretty much taking up the hour. Uh, I would just take a few minutes real quick before we wrap this up to kind of tell you what's next, what my intentions are for black duck revival for this next year. In, in my mind, you know, my year doesn't really go from January 1st to January 21st. It kind of goes from like 
the end of January to the end of January because, you know, that's when waterfowl season ends. So what's going to happen this year with Black Duck Revival? Uh, so as I've said several times, we've talked about, and you'll hear in the closing to this, right now I'm focusing on doing some uh, guiding out of Black Duck there, these catfish excursions. That's really fun. I have a ball with it. Uh, if you're interested, please hit me up on Instagram or take a look at the website. So we'll be doing that. We, I will, I will have a handful of uh, duck and goose hunts, those curated hunt schools this season. It will be, I'm still kind of deciding on the number, but we're going to be dealing with, you know, probably something in the realm of about a half a dozen. Um, I think the last couple years as people have become aware of black duck revival and of me, they've wanted to, uh, and not in a bad way and not in a bad meaning way, but they've wanted to kind of compartmentalize me as like a guide, right? Uh, I'm a guide. I'm a, I'm a black duck guide, just all that stuff. And in part that, you know, that's part of who I am, but really I'm not trying to run a traditional, uh, waterfowl lodge. I don't think I would be, you know, particularly good at it. I think that what I'm good at and what I, where I see myself bringing value to the space and to other people is in these very intentional experiences, creating a, a, a place in an environment where people can be themselves can learn, uh, feel comfortable, you know, making some mistakes, safe mistakes, but you know, just not knowing everything and coming to a place to learn or to share and all that stuff. So I think the best way for me to do that is to not try and do too many of them. It's also to be totally frank with you. It's, it's a ton of energy and effort for me and it's really expensive for me to put those hunts on. I, I think way more expensive than people really realize. And it's the reason that waterfowling in Arkansas is prohibitively expensive. And it's the reason that folks that run traditional lodges have to try and get as many people in those hunts every single day of season as possible. Cause the land leases are really expensive. Um, you know, paying for access is tremendously expensive. The gear that goes along with it's very expensive and, I'm trying to find and refine a, a way of doing that uh, that is not prohibitive for me and my family and still lets me put the experiences on that I want to. So, uh, you know, full disclosure, for the last couple of years, the way that I've had to do that is by like brokering hunts. So that means that I've bought out hunts from other outfitters and then packaged those with everything else I'm doing and kind of presented that to people. Right. Uh, and while that has worked and I think it's been, you know, quite successful, it's not been everything that I want it to be. Uh, I'm, I'm a person that wants to completely curate that experience. Right. So I want to hunt the way that I want to hunt. Um, I want to blow the calls. I want to call the birds. I want to set decoys up the way that I think is best because you know, like I'm a hunter, I'm fascinated with calls and calling birds. And that's something that, you know, there's been kind of a struggle with the folks I've been dealing with because, you know, truthfully, like if I'm doing that, then they feel like I don't need them. And it's just, 
you know, those, those instances have kind of run their course, right? So what I'm putting together this year is my own access to land, my own leases and whatnot. I'll be doing the guiding fully this year on those waterfowl hunts. And I'm really looking forward to that. I think that it's going to change the experience in a really positive way. Uh, and I'm also going to get some help uh, with the cooking because if you came this year, you'll so, you'll see that uh, or you saw that. I mean, it's it's I'm just kind of working myself at a fevered pitch, which I'm not opposed to. But especially during the processing and some of the hangout time, I'd like to be a little bit more available to the clients just for a little bit more hands on help and uh, just a little bit more of that hanging out that I think is so important to the experience. So that'll be a little different this year. Uh, this spring, and if you've seen this on Instagram, I'm in the middle right now of the, the Black Duck Revival van. I'm kind of turning it into a little bit of a camper type situation where I've got a bed, some storage in there, and I'm gonna start traveling around and bebopping, as I keep saying, in that van. I think that van is actually going to become kind of a character in what I'm doing and uh, just a little bit of a character. And I've kind of set it up very intentionally, just like everything else I do. I didn't want one of these new sprinter vans. I wanted an older van. It's a 98. It's got wood grain inside. It's got, you know, hand crank roll up windows. Uh, I think I like the fact that the paint's kind of chipped and not perfect. And there's a couple dings and dents on it because, you know, I'm really into that kind of Cromwellian presentation that warts and all. And I think it just shows a little bit of patina and some life and some experiences. So I'm going to be using that as a, you know, vehicle to uh, hopefully facilitate some really cool hunt experiences. And kind of the first experiment in that is going to be the spring when I'll be heading out west to hit a few different places uh, to turkey hunt ultimately ending up in Missoula, Montana for the backcountry hunters and anglers uh, rendezvous where I'll be participating in a, uh, like an R3 panel discussion. And then I'll be uh, given a lecture on waterfowl. I think it's the first time they've had a waterfowl seminar there, seminar there. So I'll be running the waterfowl seminar at the BHA rendezvous this year. So if you attend that and you're interested, you feel free to uh, stop by the waterfowl booth, uh, lecture hall. I don't know how it's set up. I'll find out here in a couple of months. Uh, like I've already talked about, I'm going to be doing a lot more, hopefully of, uh, traveling to, uh, other places to give lectures, speak, give demonstrations. Uh, it's, I've just confirmed I'm actually going to be in Michigan in May, uh, kind of doing a, uh, some cooking demos and some lectures at Droth Fest, which is like the big North American, um, festival for, uh, those, uh, those Drother dogs, you know, those like specialized German wire haired pointers that are really fantastic hunting dogs. So I'm excited about that. And I did a little bit of that this past year and I'm hoping to do a bunch more of that and, uh, continue to write articles. That's something I'd like to get a lot better at is writing, uh, just being better on my deadlines. I've kind of just been overwhelmed and not great with prioritizing, uh, getting some assignments in on time. And that's something I, you know, that's a place that I've fallen short at this year that I really want to improve. And, 
Uh, yeah. And then, you know, I'm, I'm working on a, a few other projects that I don't want to speak too much about right now, but you know, I do hope to be able to continue, uh, building the brand of black duck revival in a more visual kind of like film based format. So I'm working on some stuff with that. And hopefully later this spring, uh, um, I'll be able to start offering kind of in conjunction with this podcast, kind of some regular, uh, cooking demonstration type videos. Uh, cause I think that's, that's a place that I can bring some value to the space and, you know, just kind of show my particular, uh, I don't know, personality, my point of view, whatever. So yeah, that's kind of what's on the agenda for this year for Black Duck Revival. Uh, if you guys are into this at all, you know, and I hate, I ask this like at, at the end of every podcast, but you know, I guess if you're listening to this podcast and you've listened to it this long and this episode this long, there's something about it you like. So I would really ask uh, if you could do me that small favor of just telling people about this podcast. Uh, this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I finally kind of got off my ass and started doing it. And it's been a really positive experience thus far. And the reaction and response I've gotten from people has been encouraging and I'm going to continue to do it. But like, if I'm being completely frank with you, there's, I don't make any money for doing it. There's, I don't have any sponsorship for this podcast at this point. It costs me money. And, uh, my life, I am very rich in experiences in my life right now. Uh, that doesn't necessarily translate into, uh, you know, the financial stability that we would all hope and, uh, want for ourselves. And I'm not making it all about money, but you know, the way you get sponsorships, the way you get some ad revenue, the way you get people underwriting stuff is by having listeners. So if this is something you like, if you can, you know, make a post about it on your social media, if you can tell friends about it, if you can just get your wife or husband or partner or kids just to subscribe to it on Apple, just to kind of help the numbers get up a little bit, that's hugely helpful. And, uh, you know, it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to book a hunt with me. You don't have to buy duck straps from me or anything like that. Uh, but just that kind of stuff, that's a, that's a really meaningful investment in me and, uh, the brand and just kind of black duck revival. And, uh, yeah, if you feel compelled to do that, I'm super appreciative of it anyway. Well, I have listened to myself talk for about as long as I can stomach it right now. And I've got dad stuff to do. I think I'm actually going to take the kids up to the lodge for a night or two to give my wife a break because, like I said, we've been locked in this house for like eight or nine days now, and uh, we can still stay away from folks, but uh, I think mama needs a break, and she deserves it because she absolutely picks up all the slack with these kids while I'm uh, traveling around and hunting and fishing and hanging out with all of you guys. So I'm going to get to doing that. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. See you next week. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Uh, as I've mentioned earlier uh, in a few, I think a few different podcasts, uh, the books are now open for catfish 
uh, limb lining and trot lining trips based out of Black Duck Revival there in Brinkley, Arkansas. That's where I take you uh, for a couple of days fishing in the backwaters and the bayous and the river systems of East Arkansas, some of my favorite stuff on planet Earth. We will uh, use very traditional southern methods to fill the freezer. So we'll run limb lines, we'll run trout lines, depending on uh, how it's going. We might even try some yo-yo fishing, but it's a really great, effective way to catch a lot of catfish. Uh, we'll work on processing those fish. We'll uh, get them all filleted up or processed how you want them, uh, frozen so you can take them back uh, to your home place and share them with your friends and family. And one of my favorite parts of those trips is that the whole time we're fishing, we're kind of taking a very leisurely pace. So we're talking about the flora and the fauna that's there in those environments. We're talking about the water systems, the birds. Uh, we can even do a little bit of frog gigging sometimes if those guys are out and about. Uh, we talk a lot about birds. We just talk about the natural kind of Leopoldian cycles that I try and live my life by. And uh, hopefully you guys are interested in that as well. So. Those trips are for one to two people. Usually people bring uh, their partner or a friend or a kid or something. Very low barrier to entry. You don't have to know how to do anything other than sit in a boat and tie some strings. And I'll even show you how to do that. Uh, and yeah, we'll have a really great time. I'll cook you some fantastic meals and we'll hang out, have a ball. So if you're interested in that, easiest way to get a hold of me is uh, by going to the website that's blackduckrevival.com go to the experiences tab uh, we've kind of streamlined the website website uh, as of late so it's easier to navigate and you'll go straight there you'll see the uh, you'll see a brief description of those catfish excursions and you can just send me a message and we can uh, figure out a date that works for you and yours uh, also if you'd like to keep up with me instagram is usually the best way uh, that's what I'm most active on, and that handle is just Black Duck Revival. And uh, please, if you guys like this podcast, tell somebody about it. Sharing it on social media is hugely helpful. Uh, we kind of have a small but mighty following. I really appreciate everybody who's listening, who's been tuning in regularly. And, uh, man, it's really a big deal to me if you uh, take the time to subscribe. Uh, when I take a look at those uh, podcast analytics and I see how many episodes get downloaded immediately upon release it just kind of warms my heart and lets me know that there's folks out there that appreciate what I'm doing so uh, leaving a review five-star review a written review that helps out tremendously but telling people about it helps out big time as well so anyway thanks so much for listening we'll talk to you all next week bye-bye